Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest intrigues, triumphs, and outrages in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh DeHaas, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. I'm Joanna Barron, executive director of the CCF. And I'm Christine Van Gein, the CCF's litigation director. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing that historic decision from the Federal Court of Canada yesterday in which Justice Mosley agreed with our arguments that Justin Trudeau and his cabinet illegally invoked the Emergencies Act against the trucker protest because there was no emergency and that the regulations made under it were unconstitutional. There's a lot to unpack here, so we're each going to walk you through separate parts of the decision. I'll talk about the government's arguments about how much deference should be paid to Cabinet's decision initially to invoke the Act. Then I'll explain why Cabinet's decision did not meet the textual requirements of being a national emergency or a public order emergency. And finally, I'm going to tell you about how Justice Mosley found that some of the orders made under the Emergency Act invocation, which was itself illegal, were also unconstitutional. Okay, so let's start by starting at the beginning of the decision. So because this was a judicial review, which means a judge uh, putting his analysis towards a government decision, in this case, of course, the Trudeau government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act on February 14th, 2022. A really important uh, issue right at the outset is something called standard of review, which is basically um, how, uh, how scrupulous or how deferential should the reviewing judge be when assessing the government's decision for its legality or constitutionality. And so here, so Christine and I attended this hearing, which was held in April. Uh, It was a federal court hearing, but it was held uh, in a courtroom at the Supreme Court of Canada. It was in early April, uh, right after my birthday. I'd been celebrating my birthday in Ottawa, um, but the weather was absolutely miserable. There was the thunder snow situation going on. So anyways, sort of memorable, um, very uncomfortable benches. But one of the things that really uh, stood out to us at the hearing, I mean, there were several moments when we just looked at each other sort of gobsmacked. But one of the things that really struck us and we wrote about afterwards was how the attorney general for the federal government was arguing for almost totally untrammeled deference to the executive. Um, So they said uh, that cabinet is a quote unquote apex decision maker. um, And so it should be accorded total deference in responding to a fast-moving and urgent uh, situation. So Mosley picks up on this in his reasons, which were, of course, released yesterday. Uh, so he he recounts the assertion of the Attorney General that extraordinary deference is due to Cabinet in reviewing its decision, in, in him, in the judge reviewing its decision, because of its status as the apex of the Canadian executive, Um, and that the AG was essentially arguing for unconstrained executive power to impose emergency measures. And by the way, um, the CCF and the CCLA, um, who also made submissions, of course, on the very important issue of standard of review, we agreed that some deference was owed. There's no question that these, these officials are the ones who are actually on the ground responding to situations. And so they are owed some deference. It's not like you go back and recreate with 2020 hindsight. Nonetheless, uh, extreme deference um, to an apex decision maker, 
um, that essentially softens the the uh, application of the law is inappropriate. It makes the law uh, it makes the law meaningless. And so we're real we were really happy to see in his decision that Justice Mosley rejected the Attorney General's proposition. Uh, he found that cabinet is definitely owed de deference um, because it's responding to fluid situations. Um, but the deference has to operate within the constraints of the law and the law's objective thresholds. And he further notes that the Emergencies Act was clearly designed and aimed at this specific type of constraint and was designed to provide guardrails to the executive as they weighed their options, as they weighed invoking the extraordinary powers delegated by the Emergencies Act. These are powers to create new criminal laws uh, without consultation or debate of parliament to sidestep ordinary democratic safeguards. So there cannot be absolute discretion when invoking emergency powers. Um, so Justice Mosley made a pretty strong finding on the standard of review. Um, and I think this is really important um, as a precedent certainly for further app for future uh, applications of the Emergencies Act. Christine, I know that you had uh, some comments about the actual threshold for invocation of the Emergencies Act. So why don't you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so the part of the decision that I really dug into yesterday was the question of the threshold itself. And I just want to reemphasize before talking about the threshold, how Ex extraordinary this legislation is. And when we talk about the guard, why the guardrails are important, they're important because of how powerful this legislation is. And Joanna talked about that. Uh, you talked about that way saying this operates sort of as a de facto constitutional amendment. It gives the power of creating criminal law, not to the legislature who under our constitution has that power, but it temporarily gives it to the executive, to cabinet and to the prime minister. Um, we should all, that's not how a normal democracy would function, obviously, to to give this, this incredibly powerful lawmaking power to one individual or very small group of individuals is supposed to be the legislature that has these powers. So sort of turns things on their head. And because of how it, extraordinary that is, we need really strict guardrails in place. Also, this is important because of the legacy of the Emergencies Act. Its predecessor was the War Measures Act, which was very badly abused by previous governments, including this prime minister's father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau. So the War Measures Act was used, for example, to intern Japanese Canadians. It was used to uh, respond to the FLQ crisis, which look, it was, was a real real crisis. There was a, a kidnapping and assassination of a, a sitting federal cabinet minister and an unknown number of hardened terrorist separatist cells operating in Quebec. So there was real violence that was taking place and a, a real concern. But that said, the, the use of the War Measures Act ended up rounding up and summarily arresting huge numbers of civilian Quebecois people, including, you know, artists and journalists who just might have had sympathy to a separatist movement, and, and hundreds of people were put into jail. So that was, I mean, the crisis was real, but the re response with the War Measures Act was too far. And there were huge fallouts from the use of the War Measures Act, including an increasing uh, extreme level of policing by the RCMP. So the Emergencies Act was brought in to 
correct those failures. And one of the ways of correcting it was these thresholds. So the, the, there's two that I'll talk about. The first is the requirement that there is a national emergency. And the second is the requirement that there, for a public order emergency, which is what was at play here, the requirement that there is a threat to the security of Canada. So Justice Mosley treated each of these separately. And I think on national emergency, what a lot of people don't know is that the the legislation, the Emergencies Act, allows cabinet to declare an emergency when they believe a national emergency exists. And if they believe that the effects of the emergency don't extend to all of Canada, then the area of Canada to which the effects extend shall be specified. And the um, response, the measures need to be limited only to that area. So what happened in this case was the Trudeau government knew where the emergency was taking place. And it was essentially, I mean, not even essentially, it was limited to Ottawa because the, the coot situation had actually been resolved before the invocation or before the measures, and certainly before the regulations were brought into effect. Coots was resol resolved on February 14th and 15th, and the invocation took place on the 15th, and the, the regulations came in a few days later. So Coots and, and the border blockades were resolved. The situation was constrained to Ottawa. And what Justice Mosley found was that instead of of restraining the scope of the measures just to the areas where it was needed, the Trudeau government invoked the act nationally, claiming an emergency exists throughout Canada. And the court found that this was an overstatement. This is Justice, Mosley wor Justice Mosley's words. This was an overstatement of the situation known to the government at the time. Um, Justice Mosley held that the majority of provinces were able to deal with the situation using other federal law, like the criminal code, which is how the situation in Coots was addressed, or by using their own legislation. So on the scope, on whether or not there was a national emergency, on that alone, the decision to invoke was unreasonable. That is sufficient for a finding of unreasonableness here. But Justice Mosley, you know, sometimes judges will do this. They'll say, even if I'm wrong about, about this, which he, he doesn't, saying that isn't a concession that he's wrong, but he's, he's like, I want to hammer this point home. So let me find the unreasonableness on yet another ground. So he goes on to look at this, another part of the threshold, which is a requirement for there to be a threat to the security of Canada. Now, this is there when there's an emergency declared, depending on the type of emergency, there's there's different thresholds. And for a public order emergency, which is what this is, there needs to be a threat to the security of Canada. And this is a definition. This is a term that doesn't just mean anything. It's not just what Christia Freeland thinks it means. It's not just what the prime minister thinks or feels like is a threat to him. It has a statutory definition, and it's imported from another piece of legislation called the CSIS Act. And it refers to, you know, four types of activities. The only one that's relevant to us is 
uh, subsection C, which is activities within or relating to Canada directed toward or in support of the threat or use of acts of serious violence against persons or property for the purposes of achieving a political, religious, or ideological objective within Canada or a foreign state. And, you know, this requires one of the, the important parts to, to pull out of that is the requirement of a threat to of serious violence uh, against persons or property. And Justice Mosley wrote that in this definition, because it's pulled from the CSIS Act, there is only room for a single reasonable interpretation of that statutory provision. The meaning, he said, of threat to the security of Canada has the same meaning in the Emergencies Act as it does in the CSIS Act. And we know that the head of CSIS said he does not believe that a threat to the security of Canada existed. And Justice Mosley found that the only specific example of a threat of serious violence provided by the government was the situation in Coots, where arrests were made by the RCMP using the criminal code. And that's very important because Justice Mosley saying the government providing the only specific example is Coots, that is what we refer to as a finding of fact. And those are much harder to set aside in an appeal. One of the things that Justice Mosley really addresses in his finding that threat to the security of Canada has the same meaning in, in the Emergencies Act as it does in the CSIS Act is it completely destroys this argument that the federal government has been making that it encompasses economic harm. So we know that during the hearing, during the public order emergency inquiry, and even now, after losing this case, the government, the federal government, and Christia Freeland in particular, keeps coming out and saying that threat to the security of, of Canada means all kinds of different things. It means economic harm. And she made this claim just yesterday. Christy Freeland made this claim again yesterday in announcing her intention to appeal. But Justice Mosley completely refutes this. He says, absent any authority in support of the proposition, I'm unable to find that the term threat to the security of Canada encompasses the type of economic disruption that resulted from the border crossing blockades, troubling as they were. And he goes on to say, that perhaps Parliament would like to revisit that question about whether or not they want to revise the CSIS Act definition to adequately cover things like economic harm uh, when they fall or, or cover emergencies that fall short of serious violence to property. But he said, and this is very important, and I wish more judges would do this, he said, this court can only apply the law as it finds it. It has no discretion to do otherwise. So this is something that is has been a huge part of the government's position. I think finding no national emergency is is good enough, but to go as far as Justice Mosley did and really hammering that point home that there was no threat to the security of Canada makes this case much harder for the government to appeal. Josh, why don't you go on to talk about the the charter violations that Justice Mosley found, because in addition to finding that the threshold to invoke wasn't met, he said after illegally invoking this law, the government went on to create regulations that prohibited gatherings and froze bank accounts, and that those two uh, measures, those two 
regulations created by the executive, by the prime minister and cabinet, those were unconstitutional. They were charter violations. Can you tell us about that, Josh? Yeah, certainly. So there were actually five different sections of the charter plus one section of the Bill of Rights that were argued. And so I've noticed some people on Twitter were, were saying this is only a partial victory, but the reality is a lot of these um, rights are, are pretty closely related. And uh, we won on the two really big things, which are freedom of expression and the right to be secure against unreasonable search and seizure. So section 2B and section 8 of the charter. And uh, by the way, you know, our lawyers do sort of have a responsibility to make arguments that are not necessarily going to win because sometimes those those sort of stretch arguments turn out to be correct in the end. So we had argued that the regulations that the government passed, so, you know, making it a criminal offense to pr provide property as in money to facilitate or participate in an assembly that may be reasonably expected to lead to a breach of the peace prohibiting travel to an area where an assembly that may reasonably be expected to lead to a breach of the peace and requiring banks and others to, you know, freeze assets of someone who is designated as bad by the RCMP violated the right to expression as well as assembly and association. And so we won the free expression argument. We did this because, you know, first of all, we pointed out that these regulations criminalized anyone who wanted to attend a, a trucker convoy protest, regardless of whether they were planning to do anything illegal or did anything illegal. You know, for example, if they were just going to go um, to Parliament Hill carrying a sign or a Canadian flag, that protest should never have been banned. That's a violation of, of their expression, um, unlike, you know, blocking Wellington Street, which is something that the government can uh, can limit. And Justice Mosley agreed with us. He said this was, these restrictions were really overbroad when it came to, to freedom of expression. He didn't actually agree with us on uh, freedom of peaceful assembly. And that was a bit of a head scratcher at first, but here's basically what he, what he said, what he thought. So the regulations didn't, they didn't prohibit all anti-government protests. They just prohibited protests that were likely to lead to a breach of the peace by disrupting the movement of critical goods. So, you know, blockades like we saw in Windsor or seriously interfering with trade or critical infrastructure, same sort of thing, or that were likely to lead to serious violence. And so in that sense, the measure was carefully tailored because it was targeting the non-peaceful activities associated with protests. And the, the, the charter right is, is only protecting peaceful protests. And Justice Mosley said he agreed with the government that gatherings that employ physical force in the form of enduring or intractable occupations of public space that block local residents' ability to carry out their functions of their daily lives in order to compel agreement with their objective are not constitutionally protected. In other words, it's a violation of your rights to make it illegal for the government to ban, um, you know, going to Parliament Hill with with a flag or a Canadian or with a Canadian flag or a placard, but it's not going to be illegal or unconstitutional to ban in advance a blockade of, of the border at Windsor, for example. And uh, we argued this violation on expression wasn't a reasonable limit on Section 1. We said by applying throughout Canada, the regulations exposed everyone in the country to their reach. And the fact that they weren't the fact that they weren't enforced in large parts of the country is pretty inconsequential because they did, in fact, in law apply everywhere. 
And so this violated the right to expression more than necessary. It captured bystanders, whether or not they agreed with the blockading or the other illegal activity. And, you know, it just it just went way too far. And this this is something the judge agreed with. He said, you know, there were less impairing alternatives to these particular limits on on freedom of speech. Uh, just to give one example, he said that they could have been limited to Ontario, which faced the sort of most intransigent situation, to use his words. Now, Justice Mosley rejected a freedom of association argument that we made. Um, we won't get too deeply into that. But basically, freedom of association protects just the associational aspect of activities, not the activity itself. And so he didn't think that that was that was met. Uh, he also rejected a Section 7 argument that was made based on the overbreadth of the law and the fact that their people's liberty risk or people's liberty interest was at risk since they could face up to five years in prison for for protesting. And he rejected an argument about property rights based on the Bill of Rights. But the other big charter rights violation that was found, like I mentioned, was this right to be secure against unreasonable searches and seizures. And this was based on the regime that froze bank accounts without anything even resembling a warrant first. Now, the keywords in Section 8, as I think I've mentioned before on the podcast, are secure against and unreasonable. And the Supreme Court has said that a search is only going to be reasonable if it's authorized by law. And here it was authorized by law. It was authorized by the Emergencies Act if the search was carried out in a reasonable manner and if the law itself is reasonable. And the problem here was that the law itself was not reasonable. For a search to be reasonable, in most cases, there needs to be prior authorization, you know, like a warrant, basically, by a neutral third party. And so we're talking like a judge or a justice of the peace or someone other than police or other members of the executive. And that neutral third party has to find that there are reasonable and probable grounds to believe that an offense has been committed, that there's evidence of that offense in a particular place or associated with a particular person. And that didn't happen here. Banks were just told, search people's accounts, seize their assets if you have any reason to believe that they're assisting with an unlawful protest. And the way they did this was by the RCMP making a list of so-called designated persons. And the RCMP officer who was in charge of this, um, for, you know, just designating persons and seizing their accounts, he actually said in cross-examination that there was no reasonable and probable ground standard. There wasn't even the lower standard that uh, exists in law, which is reasonable suspicion. Rather, in his words, they were just doing it based on bare belief. And um, Justice Mosley agreed with an ar argument that the applicants made, which was that if you look at the proceeds of crime and terrorist financing act, so the, the law that's used to freeze terrorists' money, that requires FinTrack, which is an independent agency, to only to only inform police where they have reasonable grounds to suspect that that uh, you know a crime has been committed and these these funds are involved. And so, in comparison here, there was just no objective standard at all before people's people were searched and had their assets seized. the The whole idea, the whole purpose of that section, is to prevent governments from stooping on us and collecting our private information and then using it against their 
using it against us when we're in, in opposition to them politically. And we do that by having a neutral third party, like a judge, look at it and um, only allow it to happen if there's compelling reasons to think that a specific person has committed a specific crime. And so we're really happy that Justice Mosley agreed with us that uh, this was a Section 8 violation. So now that we've sort of walked through this decision, it's a big decision, let's um, let's chat a little bit about it. I know, Christine, you wanted to go through and talk about some of our favorite parts. I have so many favorite parts that we haven't even talked about yet. But um, Joanna, well, I have a kind of interesting tidbit just because the whole frozen bank accounts thing, it was a really big deal. And we kind of knew after the hearing or at the, at the hearing, um, the attorney general was making the case that the freezing of bank accounts didn't constitute a search, even though clearly there was accessing of private information. Um, and the judge was very clear that he was just he literally, I think, at one point said, I'm having a really difficult time accepting this. And so. Our kind of conservative bet on how this decision was going to go was that we weren't sure about what was going to happen with the threshold, because maybe we'll talk about this in a moment. The judge seemed really unsure, and he seemed open to the idea that extraordinary deference was owed to cabinet, given the exigencies of the situation. Um, so we were kind of going in with the bet that maybe he's going to, quote unquote, split the baby and find that the, the government was justified on the threshold, um, but nonetheless went too far on the measures because it was clear clear that he was not buying the argument that these measures were not were charter compliant. Um, and so happily, that didn't happen. But the thing that I wanted to mention that I think was um, interesting about the freezing of the bank accounts, I spoke to somebody, and I'm going to be as vague as possible, um, involved with uh, involved with the Bank of Canada, who has been talking to other sort of, you know, na national banks uh, in different countries, many of whom are considering adopting some form of uh, central bank digital currency for many reasons. Now, I don't, I'm not necessarily of the school that this is like a direct step into authoritarian tyranny. Um, there are some concerns, but one of the things I said to this individual was that I, it certainly doesn't help that our federal government uh, froze bank accounts on, uh, I think, as you put it, a bare belief less than two years ago. And this individual said, actually, national global financial institutions across the world are resentful that that happens because it's made everyone sort of paranoid and cranky and just put the worst case scenario right out there front and center. And uh, a lot of damage was done and a lot of distress was, ca was caused. Justice Mosley also was clearly very moved by the evidence that when they froze people's bank accounts, they also froze the bank accounts of joint spousal accounts. So there were people who literally had nothing to do with this. Who couldn't access their bank accounts in the you know in the height of winter in Canada? Anyways, uh, so the the fact remains that this happened, but hopefully the fact that we now have a federal court uh, declaration that it was a complete overstep and completely unjustified will help um, reel in some of the damage that has been done. Yeah, one of the things I want to say on the freezing of accounts, there were some great lines about this. Justice Mosley said that there was no standard applied to determine if someone would be the target of a of, of freezing or a pro and there was no process to allow them to question the determination and justice mosley described the process for freezing accounts as i'm quoting him the police just making it up as they went along so <laughs> i mean 
I, that's pretty harsh criticism from the justice. Um, one of my other favorite quotes from this decision was related to the threshold to invoke the act. This is one of the things that I care about a lot. Uh, there's a paragraph where the, the justice writes, due to its nature and to the broad powers it grants the federal executive, the Emergencies Act is a tool of last resort, which confirms an argument that we had been making throughout all of this. Cabinet cannot invoke the Emergencies Act because it is convenient or because it may work better than other tools at their disposal or available to the provinces. Now, this is exactly what we have been arguing for months. And in fact, we, you know, we sat in at the Public Order Emergency Commission. We were a party to that. I observed, I, I watched the entire thing. Uh, I was there for the entire final week. And the policing experts or the policing witnesses who came to testify, we talk about this in our book, Joanna, Pandemic Panic. They were, there was witness after witness who said things like the Emergencies Act greased the wheels, the Emergencies Act was helpful, the Emergencies Act was useful, but we know RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky said it was not absolutely necessary. There were a number of policing witnesses who made the same comment that it was not necessary, it was helpful. And so all of that evidence is incredibly helpful for, uh, and, and uh, frankly should have led Justice uh, Commissioner Rouleau to a different conclusion, but was helpful in this case. Um, Joanna, there's another quote in this case that I think I frankly want to get framed and put on my wall because of how amazing it is uh, about the advocacy. Oh, that yeah. Used, like we, inject that we... into my veins. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So let me pull this up. So this is paragraph 371. Um, so I'll just read a few lines and then um, you'll have to permit us, dear listener. We we lose a lot. <laughs> I've, I've been at this organization for eight years. We lose a lot. So please permit us to have a little bit of a moment of basking um, when we win and when we, you know, our efforts so explicitly contribute to a victory. So uh, this is Justice Mosley. My preliminary view of the reasonableness of the decision may have prevailed following the hearing due to excellent advocacy on the part of counsel for the Attorney General of Canada, had I not taken time to carefully deliberate about the evidence and submissions, particularly those of the CCLA and the CCF, that's us. Uh, their participation in these proceedings has demonstrated again the value of public interest litigants, especially in presenting informed legal argument. This case may not have turned out the way it has without their involvement, as the private interest litigants were not as capable of marshalling the evidence and argument in support of their applications. Um, so yeah, the AG Canada, they have really smart lawyers. Um, and I think this is just an extraordinary amount of candor and transparency. Um, and kudos to Justice Mosley for going into this with a truly open mind and being open to reasoning and uh, assessing the facts, the evidence, the legal argument, um, where we're really proud to uh, be represented by Sujit Chaudhry and Jenny uh, Shanmuganathan, um, who are both very experienced constitutionalists and criminal lawyers, uh, respectively. Um, and they were really able to offer a, a depth um, and a nuance about the application of the law here, although it's actually not that nuanced. It was pretty straightforward when it came down to it. Um, so really proud. It's just there's not too many times when we can directly point to moving the needle uh, towards liberty in this way. Josh, what, what are your thoughts about this? 
It's it's terrible. So many thoughts. No, no. Yesterday was a really good day, but I was actually so shocked when we got this decision that I, I sort of lost the ability to read for about 30 minutes because I was just so surprised that we won. Even we were, I remember from, from day like, one. That morning, you were like, it feels like a loss, but I don't know. I mean, before we got out the decision and I'm just, I'm, I'm superstitious. I was just like, no, no, it's not a loss, not a loss. But I was, I mean, of course we're surprised. Good vibes yeah, only, guys. Surprised. But the more, the more you think about it, the manifesting more, a good decision. <laughs> the, the more obvious it is that our, our arguments were good from, from day one. And I'll just give an example of a, an argument that seemed really kind of obvious from, from day one. And um, that I'm glad Justice Mosley recognized. And that's this idea that, uh, you know, the phrase in Section 3 of the Act, which is about whether there's a national emergency or not, says it can only be declared where it cannot be effectively dealt with. And basically, you know, Justice Rollo, when he looked at this, said, well, you know, it wasn't being effectively dealt with. You know, the, the police hadn't acted. They'd let... A sort of a blockade on Wellington Street in Ottawa continue. And so it wasn't being effectively dealt with. Well, you know, Paul Wells, who's a columnist, he pointed this out at the time that the Emergency Act came down. And Justice Mosley pointed this out too. The phrase says, cannot be effectively dealt with. It doesn't say it isn't being effectively dealt with. And so you, if you don't meet the basic requirements of the test, then you your decision to invoke the act is is not reasonable. And so I'm really glad that for once, uh, a judge, well, I shouldn't say for once, but it, it it happens often that judges ignore sort of the text and uh, see things that aren't there. And so here it's like, you know, you need to just recognize that it says cannot be effectively dealt with, not not isn't be being effectively dealt with in your view, federal government. Another thing, so just on this topic of the freezing of the bank accounts, I noticed yesterday a friend pointed this out. A lot of people who work in sort of Bitcoin and other digital coins uh, were really, really excited about this decision. And it's just a reminder that part of the reason people are attracted to Bitcoin, especially sort of libertarian leaning people, is that it's taking the, the, the power to control currency in your bank account away from the Bank of Canada and from some arm of government. And so uh, the Bitcoin people are really, really excited about this. And uh, we should try and get more of them to donate, I think. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so in terms of favorite parts of the decision, I think you, you covered a few of them. Um, another one that, that I really liked is just where, you know, Justice Mosley says, basically, um, you know, there were some, there were some sort of scary people involved in the convoy, but that wasn't most people. And those threats were being dealt with by, by the police already. I don't think people realized that this was invoked on February 14th, 2022, the day before, Windsor, the Windsor blockade was cleared and Coots, where there were some weapons found, that was also dealt with effectively by police in that province. And that province is Alberta, and they were not on board with the act. So from a federal federalism perspective, this is kind of an important decision, too, because it recognizes that that if the province can deal with it, the government can't just come in like and Bigfoot them and say, no, we're, we're in charge now. So... So yeah, those are my favorite parts. Unless we have more favorite parts, should we move on to our bad legal takes? 
I mean, just the whole thing say, is my favorite. Yeah, the whole thing is amazing. But yes, just to say, we don't usually do this. Uh, but uh, if you believe in public interest advocacy and you want to uh, see it continue, please consider donating and supporting the CCF at the ccf.ca slash donate. There is going to be an appeal. Um, we're very confident for reasons that we've laid out. Christine talked about how some of the factual findings are going to be tough to overcome. Nonetheless, the government is for sure going to throw its best appellate litigators at this. So we have to take it seriously. Um, and it's going to be going to be expensive. Uh, so if you want to support us as we continue to push back against the appeal, which uh, should be happening in the next few months, I think, consider supporting the CCF. And thank you. So yes, let's talk about some bad legal takes. Who wants to go first? So I'll go first. My bad legal take is from an Ottawa lib liberal MP named Yasser Nakvi, who I actually debated on CBC last night uh, about this decision. So uh, he said all kinds of things. It's kind of, I mean, the whole thing was just a bad take. I, I wasn't, I, I was pretty harsh with this guy because look, this is a former attorney general of Ontario and he came on to talk about the case and he definitely had not read the decision. He had received, it seemed like the liberal talking points. So his whole, he gave this whole spiel at the beginning about this being a four week long occupation that we had a lot of diesel coming out of the trucks that you could feel and smell the diesel he kept talking about the incessant honking he kept saying it is nowhere close to a peaceful protest it left no choice to the government without actually addressing what any of those terms mean like diesel is not a national emergency that is a serious threat to the security security of canada um it, look, it was disruptive, but the whole point is that protests are messy and disruptive. Um, he also talked about the the concern that he had for people from racialized communities and talked about Jewish members of his community who were afraid to go out because of signs with extremist or Nazi symbols. And I obviously share that concern. I am incensed by the symbols that we are seeing at protests across Canada uh, in the past 100 or so days. I am incensed with the rising anti-Semitism that we are seeing in our nation and around the world. And I would welcome Yasser Nakvi to condemn all of the anti-Semitism that we're seeing on our doorsteps right now. But it seems like his concern for his Jewish community was really constrained to when it was taking place with a political group he disagreed with and who was protesting on his doorstep. So a uh, real convenient invocation of concerns of the Jewish community that seemed to have suddenly vanished overnight. Uh, and, and he makes no reference to that concern now. Now, the, the worst part of this interview though, for Mr. Nakvi, I think was when he, emphasized the economic argument that the the use of the Emergencies Act was a justified on the basis of economic harm. And I think, Josh, we can play the clip here where he makes that claim and I respond to it. It actually started impacting other parts of the country. We had multiple border crossings that were blockaded, whether it's Coots Crossing or and Windsor. This was not only was having a huge impact on a community in downtown Ottawa, but it was starting to have a, a, a tremendous impact economically on, on our country. 
and the and the government, federal government, had had no option left in the end of the day, uh, but to invoke the Emergencies Act, and that was validated by the independent commission that was led by Justice Rugolo uh, as a result of the requirement outlined in the Emergencies Act after such invocation. And, and Christine, on that, you know, it was causing an economic impact. Uh, you know, I remember uh, when the the White House was coordinating with. Uh, 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 Ottawa uh, on the situation up here uh, and also you know Chris, Minister Christopher Freeland said today that this had a huge economic impact it had security threats uh, it was it was you know blocking uh, a, a huge swath of the nation's capital so why did this not rise to the level and, and what do you think of the fact that the federal government will appeal here likely so a few things economic harm is not a part of the threshold of the legislation. And that's very clear in the statute itself. The term, the Emergencies Act can only be invoked when there is a threat to the security of Canada. And that's a defined term in the legislation that's imported from another piece of legislation, the CESIS Act. And the part that's relevant for us requires that there be a national emergency with a threat of, or use of serious violence and without the ability to be solved under existing law. There's nowhere in that definition that economic harm meets that threshold. Now, Justice Mosley, in his decision, he acknowledges that there was economic harm. Of course there was economic harm. There was a blockade at the border. Ultimately, that was resolved using the criminal law under in Alberta. Uh, they simply used the, the, the existing criminal code. So clearly it could be resolved under uh, existing law. But on the threshold being economic harm, which is this kind of bizarre gaslighting term that we're hearing the Minister of Finance keep using, yeah. uh, through, or the Deputy Prime Minister keep using uh, in justifying the, their decision to appeal, it's just not part of the threshold. Think what that would mean for our democracy if economic harm allowed the government to create new criminal law by executive order. It would mean that labor disruptions, labor strikes, which are intended to cause economic harm, would meet that threshold. That's very, very clearly not what the drafters of this piece of legislation intended in the 1980s when they debated it. And this is all considered by Justice Mosley in the decision itself. He talks about how that intent, there was an intention to import the CSIS Act definition of threat to the security of Canada into that legislation because it had already been thoroughly debated by Parliament, had recently been passed, and people were familiar with this standard. So to now go out around and try and shift and meld this, this standard to fit into right. the convenient uh, threshold that this government wants to apply, that's just not how the law works. It was unjustified. Let, let, let me just put the last word to you, Yasser. Uh, okay, well, I think that that speaks for itself. I think his whole interview was a bad legal take. I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed for him. But I had a lot of fun during the interview. I had a great time. Um, Josh, how about your bad legal take? Okay, there are so many to choose from. But I, I chose one from a guy who is named John Mark Taylor. And he has the handle on Twitter, Prairie Centrist. And I normally get along really well with Prairie Centrists. But today, John, <laughs> I think you're a little off base here. Uh, we can still be friends, but I, I, I strongly disagree with this opinion. So he stated on Twitter, Justin Trudeau neither froze bank accounts nor had anyone trampled. I thought conservatives were pro-law enforcement, pro-order, and pro-safe streets. This is just more winking and nodding to the far right. 
Most Canadians were anti-convoy and remain so. So someone sought clarification about what he meant when he said Trudeau didn't freeze bank accounts, um, asking, you know, are you referring to some sort of technicality? And John responded saying, the federal government gave authority for police to do that. Politicians don't enforce laws. It's not a technicality. This blurring of parts of the state <laughs> is exactly what I'm talking about when I said that Polyev et al. are using Trumpian, Trumpian tactics. Oh my God. So, okay, sorry, John, but I really don't think you understand what happened here. So it's true that Trudeau did not personally work in, you know, the banks and freeze accounts, but the Emergency Act invocation gave him and his cabinet the power to write extraordinary criminal laws without going to the people's representatives in parliament for approval. And what he did was write a criminal law that said banks must freeze the accounts of so-called designated persons without any sort of warrant. And who were the persons designated? Anyone who the RCMP decided uh, should be designated. And what did Justice Mosley have to say about this? Well, if you look at paragraph 340 of the decision, he says, quote, in requiring the financial institutions to act on the instructions of the RCMP, in my view, the economic order effectively enlisted them as subordinates of the government. So in other words, police were not acting independently here of government, nor was the government and the police getting any approval from the independent judiciary to act. They were simply putting people on a sort of list of enemies and telling the banks to freeze their account. That is not acceptable. And Justice Mosley quite clearly recognized that. Joanna, let's hear your bad legal take. So mine is also a tweet from an individual named Mike Gerald Gibbs. I'm not familiar with Mr. Gibbs, but this is his commentary. He says three important things about the federal judge's decision on the Emergencies Act. One, the judge said he would have supported invoking the act as they did had he been sitting around the cabinet table, that with the information they had at the time, the cabinet did the right thing. Uh, no, that's not true. There is some language about how he's broadly sympathetic and he understands that they had a hard job, blah, blah, blah. But what it comes down to is that if cabinet was properly informed with the law as of the law, as they're presumed to be, um, then there's no reading of the requirement of the threshold for invocation of the Emergencies Act um, that could have been justified, that there was no basis for a national emergency and there was no basis for finding there were threats to the security of Canada within the specific uh, designated meaning of the meaning in the CSIS Act. So I think Mr. Gibbs is confusing the judge's sort of sympathetic language um, that he kind of understands that the you know the government was up against the wall, but he says, but nonetheless, there's a very clear legal standard um, and they didn't follow it. Okay, this is Mr. Gibbs' second point. It is only with the benefit of hindsight, which the federal government at the time did not have, that the judge determines they erred. No, that's not true. The judge looks at the information that was present before cabinet at the time of invocation and also looks at the standard of the Emergencies Act and says they erred, um, you know, going, going back to the days leading up to the invocation. And then third, invoking the act in Ottawa and for Ontario was proper. He merely disputes invoking it nationwide. Uh, again, no, because part of the requirement of the test of the threshold for invoking the Emergencies Act is that a nationwide emergency exists. There are other legal mechanisms for more localized emergencies. Um, so saying that it was only applicable in Ottawa, which, yes, he does talk about different situations that had already been resolved. 
Um, but that itself renders the invocation of the Federal Emergencies Act across Canada, which again operated to give police extraordinary powers across Canada, operated to put obligations on banks across Canada. Um, there's no way you can get around it. It's kind of foundational to the threshold for invocation of the act. So again, no, that's kind of a deal breaker that there was no national emergency. And as Christine pointed out, just finding that that a national emergency didn't exist uh, would be fatal to the lawfulness of the declaration of the, of the Emergencies Act. And then he concludes, Mr. Gibbs, there are, these are important nuances you won't hear about in headlines or the hysterical reactions from conservatives. No, these are just uh, legally incorrect. So sorry, try again better next time. <laughs> All right. As usual, we hope you'll rate us, review us and subscribe. And I really do mean go rate us and review us now or I'll put you on my list of designated persons. <laughs> and just a reminder, you can support our work by subscribing to the Canadian Constitution Foundation's YouTube channel by following us on Twitter or by visiting the, our website, theccf.ca, where you can sign up for our new and improved Freedom Update newsletter from our colleague Russ. Thanks for listening.